This is Josh. And this is Kevin. And on this episode of the Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry, we have Seamus Tierney, Director of Photography for Disney Plus's Mighty Ducks reboot. As you'll hear in a second, we dive immediately into his latest project. And, and from there, he just gives us more and more information on how he lights, his upbringing, upbringing in um, Gripping Electric. Um, he was a DP on uh, the second season of You, the Netflix series. There was so much we talked about. Seamus, really appreciate you, you being on the podcast and talking with us, um, you know, for... For you know, when we talk, when we touched base last week, you kind of were explaining to me that um, you're you're in Vancouver right now, uh, <laughs> and you've kind of been there since the start of um, uh, the COVID pandemic. Um, you know, with um, with everything going on, why did you choose to stay in Vancouver? Yeah, so I'm up here. Uh, I got uh, hired to shoot um, a series for uh, Disney Plus. So the reboot of the Mighty Ducks franchise. Uh, they're turning it into a, uh, a series. Uh, I think it's just 10 episodes for the first season. We'll see if we get a second season. We don't know. Um, but yeah, so we shot the pilot. Uh, I guess you call it a pilot, even though it had all been paid for already. So it wasn't like we were, um, you know, testing the water. So we shot the pilot. I came up here. We did about three or four weeks of prep. We shot for just shy of two weeks. Um, and then we were on hiatus, basically waiting for three weeks while Disney sort of cut the pilot and we were supposed to start prep again after that three-week three week hiatus. And I stayed. And then as that was winding down, the lockdown happened. And not knowing exactly how long it was going to last, I figured I'd stay up here in BC. Um, I didn't really want to get on a plane. Uh, and it seemed real safe because um, there were very few cases here at that point. And there's, the numbers are still really good up in D.C. I'd paid rent to stay here already, so I just figured I'd stay. And it's beautiful. <laughs> it was a good choice, I think. Yeah. So with, with the Mighty Duck reboot, um, can you explain why you guys were taking a pause between episodes one and two, you, you kind of yeah. elaborated to me, but, um, go ahead yeah. and dive into that. I think I did. I've never heard of that process before, but then when I, I talked to another, uh, cinematography friend of mine, Alison Kelly, who shot, um, I think she shot that show for Disney called, um, diary of a future president, I think it's called. And then she's also shooting another, um, series for Disney plus. And what they do is, because they have, they usually cast it with relatively unknown kids. So what they do is they shoot the pilot and then they put that together. And then the sort of executives and everyone, the brain trust get them, get, get, get together and decide if they like the chemistry of these kids. And there's the potential that maybe they want to switch out a kid and we'd have to shoot the whole thing over again, or at least portion of it over again, which I thought was kind of crazy, but I guess that's the, as I understand it, the sort of the Disney way doing things so that's interesting for the hiatus yeah it's very very curious and you know i was fine with it gave us it gave us even though we weren't we were on hiatus i was still prepping with my gaffer and we were improving upon what we didn't have time to do during the regular prep in terms of our set and lighting and just planning ahead and talking with production design about maybe adding more windows or whatever you know just like little details that have given the mm -hmm. extra 
time was so nice. And now I'm hoping we still have a proper, the three weeks of prep that we were supposed to have after our hiatus. I, just, I hope we have that when we get back. I know they're going to be like really anxious to get the product out, but I hope they don't uh, drop the ball and rush us through prep because we still have a lot of work to do. And then we already shot a full episode. Have you been able to see um, any rough cuts or anything like that? I mean, how have, when yeah. you say that they edit that pilot together, do they go ahead and, you know, finish it completely, you know, do the color grade, do everything. So have you been kind of working on the, the, the post of the first episode as well? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we did all that, which was also very nice to sort of, you know, uh, occupy myself with that. Um, but they took it all the way through. They call it, uh, they, they, they showed me the final cut. Um, you know, oh, wow. they're happy with it. We color timed it. You know, I, I kind of remotely did that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure I'll get a shot at before we deliver all 10 episodes. I'm hoping I get a shot at like another pass, uh, where I can physically mm-hmm. the color timer who's, they're all based in LA. So I don't know if that's going to happen. We'll see. Um, but yeah, the, uh, we shot at the director of the pilot went down to LA cause this was all pre lockdown and he sat in and they cut it and they, you know, eventually they give it over to the Disney folks and they sort of do their pass and then they finalize it. And yeah, I got an email and a, and a pics link to watch the final final and it's pretty good. Yeah. Do you find like working with Disney to be different than, you know, other episodic stuff that you might've done? Was, was there anything different to, you know, Disney kind of running the ship or did it, did it seem business as usual? No. So here's the thing with, with Disney. So let me, just, I'll give you a breakdown of the way that, that, that it's structured for, as I understand it, the Disney plus thing. So Disney plus you think about it, basically it's just the Disney catalog. You know, you've got Star Wars on there. You've got all every Disney movie ever made. Um, but then they're also, they got wise. They're like, well, we need to create original content. But they're not a television studio, in quotes. So, you know, they own ABC Universal. So they've, they're using ABC Universal as their production services people, basically, because they make a lot of TV shows. And um, mm-hmm. so the combination, it's really weird because you're, you're, you're sort of dealing with three different entities. You're dealing with ABC Universal, you're dealing with Disney, and then you're dealing with the on-ground production, which is run by a, a company called um, uh, Stage 49. It's a Canadian-based company. They do a bunch of TV shows, and they have, they're the production services right. people for, for the show up here. Right. Um, right. So it's, it's basically, it was a lot of like, meetings you know like a video conferencing between the three entities um and it it was a little weird because i i I don't want to say this too much on the record but i don't think that the disney folks know how to do tv shows yet you know they're trying to they're trying i think they're Mm. trying to find their way and find the 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 theme or the mood or the whatever that they want to represent on their channel you know like you you got you have Netflix, there's a Netflix, all those shows, and they're sort of, yes, there's a variation, but, you know, it's a Netflix movie, or it's a, it's an Amazon movie, you know, they've got their brand already going, you know? Right. Whereas with Disney, I think they're trying to figure out what they want to be, and, you know, who they want to cater to. Uh, Right. So the mandate for, um, 
uh, Mighty Ducks was we want it to be cinematic and, and it has to be look it has to look like a movie and it has to not be kind of a a regular network television show uh which which i think is one of the reasons why i got hired because they wanted somebody who had sort of more film experience and, or you know what i mean right and uh right which was a tough because you're you're and this can go into the subject of of you know episodic versus features it's like with episodic, you're really rushing to get it done. It's it's more of a packaged commodity as opposed to a feature mm -hmm. film. You know what I mean when I say that? Like when I say a packaged commodity, it's like they're definitely thinking of it in uh, financial terms or TV. Right. They do that for movies too, but it's more of a product than a, than a movie is. A more, movie's usually, for me, a little bit more of a passion project, and, and, and TV is definitely more of a product. Uh, if there's a well, and with TV, you know, they move directors and even DPs in and out very often. And a lot of times, you know, I've known from we did a movie with Kevin Smith, um, I would say two years ago now, right, Kevin, 2018. Yep. And, um, you know, he was kind of talking when he, you know, went on to direct The Flash and some of the CW shows. He said that a lot of times he would get to set and there was already so much done that he really felt like he was just there for moral support or to keep the set energy up that so much of it was already predetermined. And so, you know, that's a, when you talk TV, so much is already predetermined and kind of, you know, locked in. And so that kind of makes me think with the mighty ducks, was there any, was there like any time to where they said like, this is, even though it's the new mighty ducks TV show, like, we need to call back or we need to do this or we need to have a look or something from the original movies or was it really kind of like, this is our new playground. It's going to be our version of Mighty Ducks, you know, reimagined basically. No, it was definitely, Hey, let's, let's go back and harken back and reference back to the movie mm -hmm. because uh, just a breakdown of who's involved. So, um, I don't know if you remember a guy named Steve Brill. He was the basically the writer and creator of the Mighty Ducks franchise. Mm -hmm. uh, he's a director. He's done a lot of uh, other movies, but um, probably most famous for the Mighty Ducks. So he's an executive producer um, and one of the creatives. So, and I know him. He's a friend of mine. I shot a movie for him uh, oh, last year now, I guess. Uh, so that's kind of how I got the job. He brought me in. Um, we can get into that in a minute because that's a fun story too about that movie. Um, so yeah, they were like, no, we, we want this to look like, uh, we want this to look like um, the old Mighty Ducks movies. And we did. You know, I, I definitely, after watching them all again, I kind of came up with my own formula, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and to put my own sort of signature on it as opposed to just cookie cuttering the same thing. But there are a lot of things that I, stole and tried to incorporate into our show in terms of lighting and, and, uh, and composition and stuff. Uh, we did have to come up with, uh, you know, I wanted to sort of not reinvent it, but come up with different ways to shoot the hockey stuff, you know, uh, because for the creative Steve and, uh, the other guys, folks, um, for them, it's really important that the hockey play is true to what a play would look like. 
You know what I mean? And, is, and right. as opposed to sort of shooting a bunch of shots and then editing it together so it looks kind of flashy and you, but they really want to be able to follow the play, you know, um, which I right. thought I, I thought was a good challenge for me and my operators and the, uh, the crew. It's fun, you know. It's hard because it's you don't have a lot of time in TV, but if you pre-plan it enough, uh, you can make it work. And I think for the pilot, we didn't get a lot of hockey play, but there's a lot of hockey play coming up. And I'm, I suggested mm-hmm. sort of a, a poor man's previs, um, and they've made me this huge, well, not huge, like a miniature hockey rink out of a table. And uh, if I get my wishes, we'll we'll have like we'll be able to sort of pre-shoot some stuff with still camera, stills cameras or a video camera and do a kind of an animatic, a poor man's animatic of the, of the hockey play. Cause, oh, cool. Yeah. Cause I think it's going to be the only way that you can get through it as opposed to sitting there on the day and being like, Oh, we owe this shot of the puck getting hit. You know what I mean? Can, Cause the minutia of that. Can get right. Through. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause hockey is such a fast paced sport, you know? And did you find, I mean, how much would you say of the pilot was hockey or hockey play scenes compared to non-hockey play scenes percentage-wise? And that'll just kind of lead into our next question. Yeah, I think that for the pilot, it was pretty easy because it was about about 20% on the ice because the the whole pilot did introduce everybody. uh, You know, having read some of the future scripts, um, the percentage will be a lot higher. It'll be more like 40% hockey and then 60% other locations especially for the second gotcha yeah gotcha so with that only being 20 percent, i think you know going up to to 40 i mean when you talk about hockey being a fast-paced sport was there any conversation about like how you kind of touched on it you know we just wanted to we don't want it just to be a bunch of quick shots and you know rely on a lot of cutting you we want to be able to follow the action but at the same time with hockey being so fast what are the conversations like or what are how are you guys kind of going about like shooting those scenes to where the energy does keep up and but you're you're getting all that action so how are you guys kind of go about shooting it all and yeah so i tested for I, I t- we tested a lot of things because this was a big point of contention for everybody. And especially, you know, uh, Steve Brill in particular was like, how are we going to do this? Cause we, we need to make it good, really good. And so, you know, I, I, I went through a bunch of scenarios in my head and like my, the top of the list, my dream was like, Oh, let's do like a cable cam like they do in the NFL. But that was not cost prohibitive. It was crazy expensive. Uh, even a poor man's version was, was, pretty expensive and involved. Um, let me, let me also say that our main set is we actually built our hockey rink, our home hockey rink on a soundstage up here. Interesting. Yeah. Which is kind of funny because one of the reasons why they wanted to come to Canada was like, Oh, there's gotta, there's bound to be plenty of hockey rinks, but there weren't any available because everyone's playing hockey. So, so why was that? Why, why did you have to, is there like a story to why you had to build it? Because we could, there was none available. There weren't, we, you know, there wasn't any hockey rank available that could be like, okay, well, whenever you want to come show up. Yeah. Cause but they can't, they can't pre-plan that far ahead. But you guys went around looking for hockey rinks. That's, that's what oh. you were telling, that's what you were telling me. We exhausted. We, I, I spent so much time in vans going to hockey rinks to like, 
look at them to, and then they were like, oh, we could make this one work for this and that. It just was, it just, it made total sense that they were going to build a hockey mm-hmm. rink in the end, you know, because it's, it's, when I say it's a hockey rink, it's also, it's also like many other sets within that hockey rink, meaning there's a snack bar area, the, the, um, there's an office where if I would tell you the story of, you know, the basic story, but you know, one of the main characters office and then there's bleachers and there's going to be a locker room and there's hallways, you know what I mean? You can shoot a lot of other stuff and there's an entrance that they're going to make the facade look like so you can shoot back into the building. You know, uh, it just made sense. And it was really, it's really cool set. You know, like they, they took two sound stages and tore the wall between them down and we built the whole thing in there. Wow. So, uh, so we, so the, the other luxury is that I had an ice rink that I could test stuff on. So we did, right. uh, we tested a bunch of different ways to sort of maximize uh, the hockey play and also have a stabilized enough camera that, you know, uh, we could follow the action. So, I mean, we did a guy being pushed on a dolly with, with steady cam arm, you know, like a Garfield mount. Um, mm-hmm. we did, uh, this, like a little, like a butt dolly, you know, with the risers and an operator skating and trying to operate at the same time. Uh, we did just a straight up guy on skates with a steady cam. Uh, but what I ended up, you know, and then I, I took like a, uh, we took a, a hi hat and inverted that and put in like drilled the hockey pucks in the bottom of it. Um, <laughs> which actually worked. And then right. you put a- you put a little handle like it looks like a lawnmower which, which uh-huh. you know and which is, works pretty good and then I, I tried a ronin uh on on met several of these rigs and the problem with the ronin was uh there's you know there's sort of a slight delay in the response mm. so and you know it, which you wouldn't notice if you were doing any other shot but if you need to sort of pan over to to, to whip to find the hockey puck or to follow the player it's a little different so it kind right. of it kind of ended up being a very basic, it's an operator sitting on a dolly with an, a vibration isolator head and then just a regular, um, you know, uh, fluid head and a very skilled uh, skater or two that are the dolly grips. And that's interesting. That, that was the best way because then, you know, you don't get every every shot and you miss some stuff, but the or it, it can be a lot more organic with the operator or sometimes we did a handheld, you know, the guy's handheld sitting on the dolly being pushed. And the reason why the dolly works better than, than, uh, you know, some sort of a platform with a, you know, a riser or something is that it's got more weight to it. So if the guys are strong enough to push it around, it's a little more stable, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Right. Okay. Interesting. So with, did you, did you, did you find yourself like also using other platforms and stuff as well? I mean, I'm guessing you're still using technos and you know, stuff like that or no, or is this really yeah. just kind of keeping the camera on the ice and the action? No, we did. We did a couple of things with uh, a techno arm um, for it's this whole like uh, introduction of all the teams. And I needed, I needed a lot more scope and crane and height. And sort of a what would you call like a sexier move as opposed to mm-hmm. like a more rugged gameplay stuff and i'm sure we'll do that again uh but i gotta tell you i like the i like the dolly operator action the best where you're on the ice you know right it, very cool 
Yeah, we also did some like longer lens stuff, as, you know, from the audience. We did a bunch of passes. Right. We just to connect ourselves to our audience that's watching the hockey game, you know. Uh, but yeah, I really dug. Um, it's a little shaky sometimes, and I might have to go in and uh, do a little bit of stabilization. But we're shooting at a, enough. I got enough info there. I can push in a little. With all this going on, how many ops do you have? Um, you know, on the on the ice rink scenes, is it just one at a time, and you're no. you know focusing on one shot at, or how many cameras it's, do? You- it's usually two. Uh, you know, kind of a wide and a tight, as you would with most other things, and they're kind of following each other close together. You know, um, very cool. Or there's a there's a there's an operator laying in wait for a shot, knowing that the you know someone's going to slap shot the puck here or they're going to crash here. That you know, but yeah, it's it, it's I'm not going to lie and say you can always have two because you can't. If, you, if some so much action, you got to go down to one camera. But I don't think we had to do that too often. I think uh, I think my operators managed and the dolly grits managed to communicate enough to to. Uh, stay out of Joe's way. Plus we had a vet, we have a, we have a very great, um, like a hockey coordinator and he, he, like coach, he basically draws out the play and the, and the actors and, and players have already rehearsed that. So we know where they're going to go roughly, you know? So that gives the operators, uh, some info as to what's going to happen. It's not just a free for all, like, okay, play hockey. You know, we're, 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 we're doing specific moves, uh, to capture the the play as it would be played in a game because that's what the you know the creatives want they want you know like I said they want it, it needs to be like a hockey game it can't be fake you can't fake it gotcha right and where a lot of the actors also you know skating and doing you know playing the game or were there was it a mixture of talent and stunt guys or players it's it's a mixture of uh, the the talent and uh, and stunt stunt folks um so funny uh like the 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 kids all had to come up like three weeks early and basically start skate camp you know they skated every morning learned how to they learn they're learning how to skate because only like two of them actually knew how to skate (laughs) which is hilarious and then i don't want to give too much away but uh, i don't know if i can talk about this it's so fucking funny though um (laughs) So the guy who's not, who's like, uh, I don't know if I can give this away. I probably shouldn't, but you'll see, you'll see. The <laughs> 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 one kid that, could, that, that actually can skate, it doesn't matter for the show. <laughs> gotcha. Wow. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, one thing that I definitely want to hear your point of view on is with, with these episodics i mean you you're obviously working on um mighty duck which you know we've just dived into pretty extensively but you also were um a dp on um season two of uh you on on netflix uh five six episodes five five okay so when you are working on an episodic in comparison to a you know a, a feature film there's obviously more time in episodics across all the episodes so thus meaning there's more you know locations more characters more that you have to kind of worry about you know you as a dp how are you kind of handling the 
extra shots, the 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 added locations, the you know the more the the additional variables. Are you are you take, kind of taking your feature film experience and just expanding that, or are you doing anything different? Yeah, it's it's a little. You get to you have to be a little less precious. I, I find uh, about things, and you also have to be you you, you basically just notching it up a couple gears. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you're, you're going into overdrive sometimes and, you know, with enough sort of pre-planning, uh, you can mitigate, uh, having to compromise too much in terms of, um, the look, but with you, it was a lot of stuff in that show, you know, um, they were also pretty smart about it. They built a lot of the locations to connect to each other. Um, I don't know if you've seen the show, but there's like a whole sort of a store that he works in and it's, you know, it's a kitchen and prep and there's a whole like back area. And that was all one big set that we were able to move through nicely. Um, which really helped because you could kind of light the space and then move within it pretty easily. And that, that helped us a lot in terms of getting through the page count. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, it, there's a lot more, to a TV show in, in a certain way there is and in, in, in another way there's not, because once you go to all your locations, you're pretty much assured that you're going to go back there. So you can, you can figure out like, okay, well, if I light it this way, I can walk into the set and kind of turn lights on and go from there. You know, you've always got this sort of base layer established ahead of time, hopefully. Um, or, you know, at least, after the first episode or two, you're like, okay, I got this. When we go into this room, I got to put up this lights and put some snow blanket on it and we're good to shoot. Uh, so yeah, but then, you know, like you said, you, you, you do end up with the, like a curveball every episode where it's like, okay, we're going to the woods now, you know? And it's like, Oof. yeah, it's, huh. it's crazy. TV is a crazy ride, man. It's like, it's very, uh, octane <laughs> you you mentioned page count is there is there a kind of a a normal amount of pages that you're expected to get through on the episodics yeah per, per, per day per day yeah yeah i mean i'd say features it's for me it's like i don't know four pages a day uh tv can be anywhere like seven to nine maybe 11 sometimes you know Ooh. yeah you get the you get Whoa. the sides and you're like this is a novella it's like a, you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I laugh really good at that because my my uh, my wife has watched plenty. So, the, um, but uh, so you know, you talk about like that space and the episodic. Like, what's it coming in? You know, come in season two of you. What's it like coming in season two to a show that's already got a season established under its belt? Do you try to talk to the DP or as many of the DPs from the prior season you can, or is it just kind of like, Hey, this is season two. We're allowed to play with the look. We're allowed to flex a little bit, or are you having to, again, kind of call back to what's already been done? Yeah. They had a strong opinion about that. They, cause I'm, uh, buddies with uh, Lee uh, Krieger, the, one of the guys who created the show. Uh, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, they, and then and, and Court, 
Faye, who's the other DP on the show with me for that for season two, uh, who I love and was a great, awesome collaborator. It was so much fun because he's like, he he's done a lot more TV than me, and I was like, okay, well, you know, help, uh, like we'll help each other. And like he hadn't shot a lot of anamorphic, and the show's anamorphic, and and it's weird anamorphic. It's like these crazy. Uh, old Todd AO lenses. And then we mix those with a, um, the set of, uh, cook anamorphics, but they, they're, they've been sprinkled with some unicorn dust from the guys over at Camtech in, in Burbank. And so they have a very weird vintage look to them. And, um, hmm. yeah, so that, that was a mandate come down from the first season was use these weird lenses. Cause it, it, it really, did some weird things for uh, the show in the first season. So Lee really wanted us to try and get a hold of those. And we did. We find it was a bit of a struggle to get them from New York and get the right one because of one particular lens that they like. It's like a 55 mil, one point something crazy, you know. And it's just like the most, AC's hated it. it like, <laughs> that's the first thing that I thought of <laughs> as soon as you said that. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. oh, that's not fun. I mean, it's, it's a challenge, so it's it's a fun challenge, but it's a pain in the ass. Yeah, it was. But uh, some interesting results. Um, but, you know, Court and, I, Court and I also wanted to make the show our own, you know. Um, and we did. You know, I was like, I, I was like, okay, well, we had the added benefit of the fact that the character, the first season set in New York, and now the characters moved to Los Angeles. So you kind of can reimagine the visual slate, you know, because you're in it, you can, you can use the fact that you're on the West Coast now as a jumping off point for the visuals, you know? Right. Which is what we did. We, you know, we made it a little different, a little less warm, but they still love the, you know, the smoke and the backlight, you know, uh, so there's all that stuff from the first season that we, we held on to, um, which is, you know, I like, I, I love the way the first season looked. And, you know, we did meet with, uh, uh, David Lenzenberg, the, the DP of the first season. And, uh, and we got a few like inside tips from him and stuff. And, you know, I mean, you, you do your homework, you know, you just watch the first season and you pick out things you like and things that you don't. And then you, you kind of throw it in the bag and make it your own. So which was my plan. Right. You know, and I think it, I'm pretty happy with the way it looks, you know? So we talked a lot about, like, process. I would say whether it's feature, episodic, or, or whatever, kind of, say, day one, you know, like, contract sign, you know, you're on the job. Like, how do you start prepping your project? You know, what's your go-to process from, you know, beginning to end? Yeah, um, for me, it's a, it's a lot of, like, conversations with the director uh, and then subsequently the other like design team people you know like production designer uh, mm -hmm. but my philosophy with prep is you know yes you should shot list if you want a storyboard that's also wise it depends on the scope of the project and how involved it is like if you have stunts you should you should really talk through all that and um, you know on just to die a little bit uh the movie that i did before i did you uh was probably my biggest movie to date it was uh it was like big budget um like 40 million and i was like okay i've made it i'm here i've got a 40 million dollar movie this is gonna be easy 
Uh, <laughs> I got all the money in the world. Uh, it was not. <laughs> it was very challenging and very hard, but uh, I got to do a lot of very cool things, and we, we got to plan them out as much as you could, as opposed to like mm-hmm. a lower budget movie where you you don't have as much prep time and you don't have as many resources. Um, it was really good to have like proper animatics and uh, you know uh, schematics of, of lighting setups that were huge, um, but lots of fun. But anyway, so back the, the the point I'm trying to make is the conversations and the shot listing and the um, storyboarding are all for me um, a way of getting at what is the idea or the emotion behind a scene as the director sees it or as we all collectively see it. Because inevitably when you get on set, something's going to go wrong. And so if you, if you, if you have in the back of your mind, whatever the emotional intent of the scene was, I find that I can always find a way to shoot it if the original plan of shooting it gets goes pear shaped for some reason. So if like right. we get there's a wall there and we can't shoot there, or you know the sun's not in the right place, or whatever, um, I can always sort of harken back to what the idea is behind the scene and come up with a way of conveying that emotion visually, which is you know it's our job. So right. all that prep. You know, it's all good for for you know planning and planning and planning, but ultimately, it's just it's just a way of getting at the idea that you're trying to convey or the emotion. You know, because at the end of the day, that's that's what should that's what should push your decisions and your visual you know uh, approach. So. You also were the DP on the Sarah Silverman special. Um, how does yeah. how does that correlate to a a comedy special? I mean, yeah, yeah, it's part documentary, part comedy special. But I I, I just want to I just want to see where the the correlation on the shot list would come into play on something that's a little bit more organic. Yeah, that, so that one, that was, what that becomes about is where do you put your cameras? You know what I mean? Because you're given seven cameras, sometimes more. I got seven, I think. Um, And it's just like, wow, how do we, how do we use all these and how do we maximize them? Um, And so it was, it was just sitting down with the director and with my key grip and gaffer and figuring out, okay, well, what's the best tool for this? You know, we want this angle, we want this angle, we want this angle. We'd love this angle to move, but we can't put an arm there because it'll get in the other shots, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. So it was, it was a couple days of, of uh, talking of talking that all through. Um, and then, you know, how does that work with the lighting? That one was a real challenge because that's that we shot that at the Largo, which is a very old theater in Los Angeles and the owners, uh, didn't want us to touch anything. I couldn't, uh, rewire too many things. I could hang a few lights, but that was it. Uh, they were very cautious about, um, breaking anything using their electrical system because it was so old. Uh, but Sarah really, really wanted to shoot there. So we did. Um, and yeah, that was, 
probably the biggest challenge was like how to light that space uh, interestingly and work around the parameters of, of the location. Did you, you know? bring, Which, did you bring in like a generator or anything or did you in fact? Yeah. No, we bought in, we bought in, I think we bought in more than one, maybe two just cause we had to run all the camera stuff. So it's, it's like this command center, you know, like they, we hired this, they hired a company. I think it's it used to be VTR. They might have a different name now, but they basically come in and they like cable the whole thing from where all your cameras are. And they get, the, they get it all back to this sort of, command center where myself and the director get to sit there on comms and basically just talk everyone through it, you know? Yeah. So that's a, it's a big ordeal. It's a, but it's very exciting. Cause it, like you said, it is spontaneous and documentary. We shot it over two nights just so that they were sure to have enough material and enough crowd shots and stuff. But, um, a lot of fun. It's like anything live is just a lot of fun, you know? And when you were doing that, was it, I mean, was it basically like going right to a TriCaster or something like that being cut? You're making the cuts as you switch or is it, you know, they're going to make those cuts later, make notes? Yeah, it was a combination of both. I think what Liam, the director, did was he he was, uh, I think he was actually talking the notes to uh, maybe to himself, but he was like, you know, okay, camera seven, camera one, camera two, you know, but yeah, they cut it all up together later, yeah. Got it. Yeah, but, but you know, he was also talking to the operators too. It's like because we had a lot of, uh, you know, we had a couple of zooms in there, and it'd be like, you know, uh, camera three get tighter, blah blah blah. You know, yeah. And then we had a steady cam guy off to the side trying to get some shots from the, you know, side kind of a three quarter back shots with some flares and stuff. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. bringing back memories. I started in live events, so that's I, I I know all of that. It's interesting that you're you know you're very much a a true DP, but in in that realm, you were you were living the live event, um, um, putting on a live event hat and just ensuring that you got full coverage. Because yes, you yeah. had you had two nights to do it, but that's you know. That's all you have. I mean, you, you, the fact that you actually had two nights is impressive because a lot of times you only have one. Yeah. And Sarah, Sarah is very concentrated and doesn't fuck around. So you can't mess up. You know what I mean? You got to be on your game, which is the same thing with my, the movie that I did with Steve. It was an Adam Sandler movie and Adam is, is a professional man. And he like, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't like to waste time and money. So you got to be, got to bring your A game. Yeah. A lot of fun. So how did, I mean, you dude, you've just done so many, you know, different and interesting things. Like how did you get started in the biz? I mean, did you go to school? Did you not? What, what's been your journey to this point? Yeah. So, um, I always wanted to make movies since I was like a teenager. I didn't, know what I want to do. Like, I, you know, I think like everyone else, I was like, I want to be a director. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, ditto. <laughs> because you just don't know what all the other positions are, you know? Right. Um, so I just a brief history. I grew up in Hawaii and Australia. I'm half Australian, half American. Um, I lived in Australia till I was about 21, 22. And then I came back to America and I came to the East coast. Uh, and uh, I was like 
trying to think about going to school, you know, like, okay, I'll, I'll go to, I'll try and get into NYU or something. And I was working in this little coffee shop and, uh, a friend knew that I wanted to get into film and he, he cut out this little piece of paper from the village voice and it said PA, film PAs wanted. And I had no idea what a PA was, but I went in for the job. I got the job. I think I was making, I, I was officially like unofficially like an intern. Cause I think I was making like 50 bucks a week. Um, and I, I started out in the office before we went to production. And then when the movie started, uh, they brought me on, and this is a really low budget movie. They brought me on set to do like craft service or whatever, you know, help out PA stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but I kept watching the grip electric guys and uh, I never looked, uh, you know, as, as you sometimes are on a small film, they were, uh, short staffed, you know? Uh, so I started watching and, and then like, I'd hear some guy call for some wedges and I go, Oh, let me grab those. So I grab them, you know, and like bring me a wedge instead of bringing him one, you bring him three, you know? And so halfway through the job, the gaffer was like, um, we're, we don't have enough people. I want this guy to stop doing craft service and come work as an electrician. <laughs> so, uh, I did. And then, uh, that gaffer took me on a couple other things and I started, uh, lighting, you know, I was a, I was an electrician for a very long time. Like, uh, I worked in New York as an electrician and a gaffer for about seven years. I, uh, it was kind of the heyday of Sundance Indies, you know, where they had decent budgets mm -hmm. and, and, you know, all those movies that came out of New York, you know, uh, and LA too. But, um, and sort of worked my way up the ranks and I was gaffing. Um, and on the, on the side I was shooting, I started shooting. Um, well, let me say I, I bugged the hell out of every DP that I ever worked for about like, Oh, why are you doing that? Well, you, what are you doing this? You know, just as you do. Uh, and some of them were nice and some of them worse. Uh, but I worked my way up and I, and then I started shooting, um, short films for, NYU kids and mostly for Columbia grad students because Columbia film program, they didn't have a cinematography concentrate, so they had to hire out. Hmm. Um, and so I shot like, oh man, I, I must have shot like 40 short films. And what I would do is we were still shooting on film back then. And so occasionally uh, they, you know, they, they didn't have any money or not a lot of money. So they would shoot on 16 and every once in a while I'd say, look, why don't you let me pay the difference and it will shoot on 35 and I'll, I'll pay the difference from the money that I'm making as a gaffer or an electrician. And that's how I sort of built up a reel. Um, I also, just as a side note, I also started lighting for a stills photographer, a guy named Steven Klein. And I worked for Steven for about three years off and on. Um, and I got to give credit to that time where, uh, I learned a lot about lighting because Steven wanted um, very cinematic type lighting. Um, and sometimes we use strobes and sometimes we, we use movie lights. And what I found with strobes was, you know, it's not like you set up a, a scene and you light it and you can see how the light is and you can change it. With a strobe, you have to sort of pre-visualize what a light's going to do before you set it. So that really helped me to become a stronger lighter. You know, um, anyways, so back to the short film. So I shot a lot of short films. Um, a couple of them won some awards and whatnot. And then I decided to go back to school and I applied to AFI 
and I got in and uh, went to Los Angeles and um, did my two and a half years at AFI and um, and started getting movies. You know, I uh, I I was shooting a movie the day that I graduated from AFI. <laughs> and I had to leave. I had to leave the set and go to the graduation ceremony and then come back. Um, but that's kind of unusual. I, I, I also, I was, I did not, I took anything and everything in the beginning. I shot horror movies. I shot stupid comedies. I shot whatever, you know, um, as you should, as anybody listening at wants advice on how to do it, just shoot, 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 shoot everything. Uh, and you can get picky later. Um, yeah. And so, uh, a lot of the movies that I shot in the beginning were, East Coast New York movies because that's where I knew people and had producers that now knew I was a uh, a shooter and I, that's where my agent was based and uh, yeah and I got an agent um, just after I got out of school because of a short that I shot one of these shorts and it won some festival thing and my agent or my agents uh, you know an agency called me out of the blue and they're like oh, do you have representation and I was like no like. Like I never even thought I was, you know, at a level where I could have an agent. And they were like, well, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, and they took me on and I still have the same agent. Nice. Yeah. So, so, I mean, maybe apart from the like shoot, shoot, shoot stuff, you know, um, what's the one thing that you would, you know, she had all the knowledge you have now and younger you was, you know, working at that coffee shop. Would you say like, yeah, still go for that? you know, PA job or what would you say to like the, the younger you now, what would be that like one piece of advice that you would want if you could get it when you were just starting out? Oh man. I don't know. I mean, I gotta be honest. I think my, my journey, I'm like, I'm super happy with the way that it's panned out. Mm. You know, like I, 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 I think it's like, it's going to sound a little hippie, but um, you know, when I first started out, I, I was, I would, you know, kill yourself or you take every job, blah, blah, blah. But I think the right. advice I would give probably is something like surround yourself with people that you like to work with and work on projects that you're interested in. And I know that's not always achievable, but if you can try and stack the odds towards doing things that you are interested in, you're going to have a better time in it. You're going to stick with it longer and the product is going to be better. You know what I mean by that? Like you're going to put more heart into it. And I think that you'll be more happy with the end result, whether that's pumping cable uh, to learn how to light or, um, you know, trying to uh, carry camera cases to get to a operating position. You know what I mean? It's like, I think the best way is to go and start kind of at the bottom and work your way up because going to school as, as uh, beneficial as it is, you're still going to have to go out into the workforce and probably start pretty low on the totem pole. Um, right. I, I didn't do undergrad film. I went straight to grad school. And the reason why I went back to school was because I wanted to stop gaffing and just concentrate on shooting. And that, that seemed like a very good option because it forced me into not gaffing and making money, you know, like, cause it's very, you can get into a, you can get it into a, a niche and it's like I can work all the time as a gaffer and it's I make a lot of money and it's great why do I want to go back to zero and start over and try and become a, a shooter you know it's like 
but if that's what you really want, then you gotta, you gotta eat soup for a little while and, you know, starve a little bit and, and work your way up, you know? Right. Yeah. So one thing you said earlier that was interesting too, you, you talked about, you know, when you had the kitchen on you, you talked about, you know, lighting the room. What's your, do you have like a philosophy on light or one way that you kind of, you know, no matter what project on, you kind of bring that philosophy to how you're going to light it. Uh, you know, some yeah. people are light the space. And I mean, what's your philosophy to, to that? Yeah, I try to, I try to do this thing where it's like, if you're using more than three lights, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, and that's not always the case. Uh, but that mentality and that idea is usually right, you know, because, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll preface that by saying that's in a room. If you're, if you're using more than three lights, then you're just too much, you know? Uh, so I like to light the space and let the actors move within it. Um, I like to light from windows or practicals because I don't like to, if the, if the director and the actor wants the character to walk, get up and walk over that part of the room, I don't want to be, the person that's restricting them from doing that because that's part of what they want to do. You know what I mean? Uh, and so I try and light to facilitate that. And I try and light quickly so that if things change, um, I can accommodate, uh, an actor wanting to go over there or a director reinventing the shot, which is not always the funnest thing in the world, but it, you know, it happens. And, and for some reason I like to, I like that challenge of like mother, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, you know, like, Oh, what do we do now? Cause this guy's going to go over here, you know? Um, uh, I don't know if I'm explaining myself well enough, but, um, no, yeah. no, definitely. Yeah, you you are. Are. I'm getting it. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, light for me is such an infinite thing in, in, in the possibility. That's what, that's why I love it. That's why I love lighting because there is no right way to do it. And it's, it can be, you can, I've done so many crazy cool things just because I wanted to try it out. Like I remember, you know, um, when I was lighting the, for the photographer, I wanted to make a black Mariah. Do you know what that is? It's like the old studio where they would have uh, four walls, but they wouldn't have a roof and they would use the sun to light the space, you know? And so I, I, I recreated that. Yeah, I recreated that on a soundstage for I think it was for a Britney Spears album cover that we shot. And it's like it was they built this old like cabin and she's sitting on the porch. And I ringed the whole thing with uh, like with uh, black, uh, you know, big uh, solids. And then I put like three layers of muslin over the top and just pounded all this light in. And it's this beautiful soft falling light as if you were outside on a on a sort of a cloudy day. And it seems ridiculous. Right. It's just like, I, I want to try this because that's how they used to do, do it, you know? Or like mm -hmm. you, know, you find you find a dirty mattress on the in, in an alleyway and you bounce a light off of that and it creates this like certain color and certain, you know, texture, things like that. That that's that that's the stuff that, that gets me off and that's where the juice is, you know. It's like uh, you know, yeah. I used to do all kinds of crazy stuff, like take rolls of toilet paper on a C stand and like break up light that way, or, you know. <laughs> Like you take a coffee filter and you put it in front of a light or, you know, just weird stuff. That right. You, yeah. Yeah. So that's that kind of like, you know, 
early on indie film mentality too, of just like using what you have to, to get your scenes shot. Because once you kind of get to a certain point, you know, those, you know, ways of being, you know, ingenuitive kind of go out the door because now you've got a 10 ton truck with all the goodies and, you know, all the, you know, the newest of the new stuff. And I mean, I'm sure there's still interesting ways and things you do to problem solve, but you know, it's kind of the same thing for me. I remember those days like right out of film school or the first early films you do. And it's like, I don't care. Just, you know, we'll black it out with a bed sheet or something, you know, and you know, you do what you do. Yeah. And now, yeah, yeah. And now like the flip side of that now is like, like a, like the big movie I did, I say big, you know, bigish. Uh, we were in this, we had to be in this cornfield, uh, like a corn maze that we actually made. It was really cool. Like we planted the corn. I didn't, but somebody did. <laughs> planted the corn <laughs> in pre-production and then it grew and we cut the maze that we wanted. Like we made the design and, you know, I cut, right. you know, I cut so there was like, you know, only a few stalks so I could shoot through it. But we had to be there. Uh, it's a Halloween movie, right? And, and, but we shot it in the middle of summer. So the nights are like maybe seven hours long if you're lucky, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and so we had to be there for three days and we had kids. So they could only work to a certain hour. So right. my gaffer and my key grip and I were like, how are we going to light this so that we don't have to keep moving stuff around all night? Um, and we came up with like uh, the idea of building like a moon box. So we built this huge 40 by 40 Roger Deakins esque, you know, moon box of like, uh, and I put like, uh, you know, it's all diffused, you know, it's got like a bucket thing. It's diffused and it had like 25, um, S sixties in it. God. Yeah. It's, it was massive. It was like the big, and we needed a, like a <coughs> army corps of engineers had to come and figure out if we could put a construction, a 300 foot construction crane in the field next to it, you know, if it could support it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and I get on set and I'm just like, holy shit, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to I got to send you a picture because my uh, board operator then decided to put it into what we called unicorn mode. Um, where oh, we, God. It, it had this tracing thing of all the rainbow colors. And uh, just as the sun's going down, he turns this on and it's just like, everyone's like, ah, you know. <laughs> that must that must have been a trippy moment it was so much fun it, it, it totally worked though because we could we, we could move it around as we needed to and tilt it a little bit here and there but we, we didn't have to move it around much and it was this top soft top light very like kind of seep, sleepy hollow remember that movie yep uh mm -hmm. and then all i did was i had a piece of beadboard on the ground and somebody's just walking around with it and it's like i didn't have to move it all night long you know Nice. Yeah. Nice. it was really cool and it it, what was it like shooting on the ice for the hockey scene you know now that you talk about that and with the top light and everything i mean did you I mean, did you find you needed more or less light what was the deal with the ice because i imagine oh. that whole you know all the white ice is pretty reflective it's a bounce it is, it's a big bounce and I, I i kind of uh used that to my advantage and then it became a disadvantage in some of the stuff. Um, <clears throat> so the set that we built, right, um, the production designer and I kind of came up with the concept. Uh, so it's got, it, it, the idea is that it's a very, it's an old defunct um, rink from the 50s. 
and it so all this mm-hmm. stuff is very old and um that's a whole part of the the production design and so i asked to right. have these um uh lights in the ceiling that i could look at so i didn't want to have movie lights you know i, I want to be able to look up at the ceiling and not see any movie lights uh so i got um i think i have another i think i have 30 um s120s and then i got the the production design folks to build a housing that looks like an old industrial sort of fluorescent housing, but it's huge. It's like five feet by three feet or something. And we hung them all on the ceiling and there are these big, like, you know, they look like something you'd find in like an old Russian building or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. And they're all like, you know, all in a dimmer, all numbered. So I can, I can decide what the level is and, or turn them off, turn off, you know, I can create contrast by like having one row on, on the key side and then turning the other, all the rows off on the other side, you know, to create a little contrast. In addition to that, that I wanted to sort of harken back to the original Ducks movies. And if you watch the first movie, it's very dramatic lighting. It's very like hard pools of light down hitting, hitting the ice and then everything else sort of turned off with some, uh, with some fluorescence uh, sort of scattered around the deep, deep background along the walls to create separation. Um, so I've got sort of two lighting scenarios there where I can do these pools of light, um, which I'm not quite a hundred percent happy with. I used par cans, but I think I need to beef it up and use it like, like two K pars or something or five Ks cause it, I need more, need more poop out of them. So I ended up putting three of them directed into one circle because the ceiling's really high, but I don't like multiple shadows. Anyways, that's my, one of the things I'm trying to solve for the, uh, the rest of the season. Um, yeah, so, but, but sorry, back to your question. So, and then the other thing is I wanted windows, which you don't often find in a, uh, ice rink, but, um, mm-hmm. these very cool windows up high where I could have streaming hot daylight come in or, uh, nightlight, you know, like city light if you want it. And so I, I put in, um, they're like 14 feet wide and about maybe four feet tall, the windows. Uh, and I put a, uh, a T25 in each one and I wanted, uh, I wanted to be able to move those lights and we didn't have the money to, to get crazy with any kind of robotic, uh, you know, system. So the grips came up with a way where I could raise it, put it back, you know, take it further away from the window and move it side to side. It was a crazy feat of engineering. I kind of tasked them with it and they figured out a way to do it on the pulleys and all this crazy rigging. It's really cool so that being said i can have these really hot shafts of light come in and what happened is i can make them pretty narrow so they bounce off the ice in a particular spot and then kind of illuminate the rest of the 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 set and yes you know you Uh, gotta control whether or not it you you can't let that burn out too much which is what i can use the overheads to create a a base ambient level so i kind of bounce it out if i want to you know Right. So you you were mentioning the multiple shadows. Um, a, a little bit of a two part question. Um, how are you addressing that? And when you don't have that as an issue, are you having any negative on the ground? Um, you know, because a lot of times you would just have a bounce, um, which is a little bit of the ice rink, like we just talked about. But is there, you know, are you having any negative? Any you know six or eight by solids um, kind of walking? parallel or underneath yeah. to kind of bring that contrast to life because you know most 
TV shows are a little bit more bright and airy, especially when you think of Disney, Disney Plus. Um, and we've already discussed this is not looking like that. You're going for that contrast film look. Correct. Yeah, yeah, correct. So I, what I have is I have a bunch of what I call uh, like, um, you know, you, you do like a, 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 a T-bar of a solid and I got them in, I got them waiting in the wings. You know, I have uh, 12 by 20 by uh, eight by six by, I never use the six bys. It's not enough, but, um, and they're just on a, either a single stand for the uh, eight by and the 12 bys. And then the 20 by is two, two, two of them. If I need a, a big area, bla- uh, neg- neg- you know, negged out and I just roll those around and it's real fast and, uh, you know, really nice. And then I, I, I could either use a bounce or just rely on the, um, the iced bounce light back. My, I told my gaffer and my key grip, my reference for this was um, Toy Story 3. And I don't know if you, you, if you guys have kids, you've probably seen it. Oh, but so many times. So many it's times. So, <laughs> such a beautiful movie, you know, and like the way that all that stuff at the, at the um, nursery where the, the light comes in and you're getting that uh, floor bounce back on their faces. Yep. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous to talk about an animated film, but it looks so good. And that was my, that was my reference to my team. I was like, this is what I want it to look like, you know? Hmm. Uh, so yeah, we're working on it. We're getting there. You know, I hope, uh, I think that we did a lot of cool stuff in the pilot in terms of being on the ice and how to reveal, uh, Emilio Estevez, which I'm allowed to say, cause they've been, they've had press about it already, but so his introduction in this series, I wanted to do something really cool where he kind of steps out of shadow and fog and we see that it's him. You know, yeah, and I think we achieved it. It's pretty cool. It's like all this heavy backlight, and then he walks into the bounce and threw some smoke, and there's Emilio Estevez. Nice. I, I what mean, well, dude, yeah. I want to appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. Um, that was super awesome, really informative. Um, there's one, there's one project that I, I definitely want to talk to you about. I'm, you know, might be something we leave maybe for part two, um, at a later date, but, um, let me hear, I'll bring it up real quick. Centigrade? Like at the point where, yeah, centigrade. Um, yeah, the, uh, the concept of being trapped in the car is really interesting to me. And, um, you know, like that's definitely something I would love to maybe like on another episode, pick your brain about. That was a lot of fun and crazy shoot. Um, I, yeah, we should definitely talk about that one. For, for, for <laughs> it, just, just to get me a little, like, uh, just to get, you know, uh, a little okay. taste, but were you like soundstage or were you actually outside? Like how, how was that kind of, Okay, so again, I'm I'm gonna pa- I'm gonna pause you real quick just so because we yeah. we dived in so quickly just so anyone listening actually yeah, know right. knows what we're talking about. You have you have a film Centigrade coming out. Um, it's currently set to release this August, correct? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's what we're diving into. So go go ahead, Seamus. You can go from there. And just so people know, Centigrade is a story about two people trapped in the ice in a car. And in actuality, uh, I think they're in there for 21 days, maybe. Um, so we had to figure out how you wake up as uh, the audience wakes up as these folks wake up in the car that's buried in the ice. That's how the movie starts. And I'll, I'm not going to say if they get out or not, but there you go. So we had to figure out a way to do this. Um, 
but we didn't have a lot of money. But because it, it was it was designed to be a contained movie, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So we 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 exhausted all kinds of things. Like, how do we find a soundstage? And the director was like, I want it to be cold. I want to see their breath. I want to actually be in that temperature. And so we were like challenged with how to do that. We ended up uh, finding uh, an ice cream uh, manufacturer uh, and we rented their freezer. So we rented uh, two big freezer trucks and we took all their ice cream out of their ice cream freezer and put it in these trucks outside. And then we took two cars and we put them on a Gojax and we brought them into the I into the uh, freezer and we shot in the freezer. <laughs> and nice. I, could talk, I could tell you all kinds of stuff about how I wanted the light to be particularly through the ice in the windows. So it had to be real ice. Cause it, uh, if you use, I, I did some tests and if you use like any kind of fake stuff, it tends to go green and brown and I wanted it to be more blue. Uh, anyways. Yeah. I don't know how deep you want to go in now, but um, it, it was a lot of fun and very challenging. And then also the other thing is the director wanted to shoot anamorphic. And as we all know, you know, anamorphic automatically comes with a, um, a minimal focal distance issues. Do you know what I mean? Like the, mm-hmm. on the average lens, it's about three and a half feet. So how the hell was I going to get the camera where we needed it to be and away? <laughs> To be within that, uh, you know, uh, to be outside of that minimal focal distance. And, and yeah. is, is it fair to say that you pretty much were always riding the minimum distance, like on, on a? So I, I found a really cool set of lenses. Um, they're called the Scorpio Anamorphics, made by um, a Spanish company. Uh, the guys who make they also make cranes. Uh, Service vision, I want to say. I'm oh, sorry, I'm just looking it up. Very good. Anyways, the, they, they, those lenses, um, uh, the wider lenses, you can get down to like 16 inches, 18 inches uh, minimal focal distance. So I use those a lot. Um, but yeah, we were, and then uh, that with a combination of a lot of. Um, uh, diopters often you know to get the to get the shots we needed with the camera where it wanted to be yeah <laughs> that's really interesting okay right. yeah i definitely think we'll uh get a day on the book sometime to just talk that and, and maybe some other stuff um yeah. but really appreciate you coming on and talking with us today brother it was really fun really enlightening um is there is there anything you want to do? Shout out at the end here. Um, you want to share your social media or any projects you got coming up that you want to share and talk about? No, not really. I mean, you know, the the, the movie, the next movie that comes out is uh, it'll be it's called Hubie's Halloween. It'll be it's a Netflix film that I did for Adam Sandler and the folks at Happy Madison. Uh, it'll come out uh, on Halloween probably. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. Nice. Yeah. Right. Well, cool. I think the Mighty Duck speaks for itself. Yeah, you got you got a few projects coming <laughs> yeah, out yeah. this year that are um, gonna gonna be really excited to see. Yeah, yeah. All right, man. Well, thank you yeah, so much. I'll have to I'll have to 
avoid going around the house and saying quack, quack, quack for a while. <laughs> All right, my, my wife had never seen it, um, which I'm not surprised by. She seems to miss some movies that I'm just like, how did you not see that growing up? Um, so we, we had a... Um, uh, Mighty Duck Marathon uh, about three-ish months ago. Um, right. Yeah, and I very legitimately got my two-and-a-half-year-old to start saying quack, quack, quack. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and she was just like, for real, we're doing this? And I'm like, uh, duh. You, you married me. You didn't see this coming? Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> so, um, but man, thanks again for, for hopping on with us and giving us a lot of good insight. Really excited to see, um, you know, the two movies along with Mighty Ducks uh, coming out in the near future. Cool, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, guys. It so, was good. And, and happy good. shooting. Um, enjoy the, uh, the, the upcoming hikes that you have and, and production right around the corner. Yeah, I'm hoping it starts soon. Wow. Sounds good, man. Thanks for coming on. Okay. Bye. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Kevin. It's the end of the podcast. Josh, that means that everybody needs to stop what they're doing, write us a review, and subscribe for future episodes. Yeah, I mean, it would really help us out a lot. It helps us kind of get to the, you know, new and noteworthy section, top of the charts, help us get new people, new interesting and lovely film people on this podcast. Along with that, you can follow us on Instagram at FGI Podcast, and you can also check out more episodes and more information, more bios and information for all of our speakers at fgipodcast.com. This podcast was also recorded live in front of a studio audience, and we flew everyone out on Delta Airlines. No, but um, it was recorded live at Two Stories Media Studios, and it's presented by Greenland Entertainment and Two Stories Media.